lovely job playing the piano and uh, playing stringed instruments. Well, uh, this evening we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So I encourage you to turn there. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, this is, uh, uh, for me, sort of an especially enjoyable passage to study and then to some degree to preach also because, honestly, there's a couple of enigmatic things in this passage. And I'm going to put some of it before you, trying to, as best I can, and from what I've read, uh, making sure I rightly proclaim the Word of God. Now, there's probably not a single verse in the Bible that I understand exhaustively, right, because God is so profound. But there's some passages, too, where there's a head-scratcher or two in it, and this one has a couple of those. Uh, but that kind of draws my interest to it. But uh, we're going to read this passage tonight and study it. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have traveled north to uh, Cana in Galilee. If you're imagining Jesus and his 12 disciples, you'd be a little bit off. At this point, he has just five of his 12 disciples. He hasn't chosen all of them yet. He has Peter and Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and another disciple here, uh, possibly John. And uh, they're attending a wedding. And the fact that Jesus is there with his disciples and Jesus' mother is there uh, would suggest that it's probably someone who's been close to the family of Jesus. Could be a relative of Jesus' family or a close friend. Uh, we don't know a ton about weddings in first century Palestine. Uh, but we do. It does seem that it was a big to-do. And the celebrations would go on for days, maybe even for a week or so. And uh, there would be a time of gathering and a time of feasting. We read in verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Uh, the financial responsibility of the celebration lay with the groom. And in these days, if you, in fact, I went to a, a wedding in Dallas, Texas a few weeks ago and Following the wedding, there was a lovely uh, to-do uh, outside in the grounds there. And no telling how many beverages they had. You know, they had, of course, all the, all the soft drinks, all the sparkling waters. They had the, the wines. They had the, the other alcoholic beverages. There were many different things to drink, right? But, but in this case, probably it was limited to two. They probably had wine and water. And to run out of wine in this... Uh, in this occasion, would would be a social faux pas. It, it, it would be an embarrassment to the groom and to his family. And so Mary takes the initiative not only to provide wine, but probably moreover to help this family not suffer the embarrassment that would come from running out on this uh, this big occasion. And and you know, just like uh, uh, people step up to the plate for. For events that include food, and frequently women do. Maybe Mary was even partly, you know, I don't know, in charge, but but at least assisting in this gathering and this event. And so she deals with the problem by going to her son, and she makes her request in the form of a statement: "They have no wine," and uh, it, it's. It's obvious she wants Jesus to do something about it. 
Now, what did she want Jesus to do? Clearly, she wants Jesus to solve this problem of of running out of wine. But the question is raised of whether Mary is expecting Jesus to address this problem through miraculous means or whether through ordinary means. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll... I'll say I fall to the side that I think she's asking him to do something out of the ordinary to solve this problem. But but to but to give uh, respect to those who would think she's expecting something to happen by ordinary means, um, we can think, okay, Joseph has not been mentioned since Jesus was uh, in the temple as a boy. So Joseph probably passed away years before. Jesus is the eldest son. So it could be likely that the mother goes to the eldest son and says, son, I... I need your help. You need to you need to solve this conundrum uh, that uh, the family finds itself in. Um, but uh, from Jesus's response, that we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, I, I I think uh, she was asking him to do something out of the ordinary, and uh, and and so uh, uh, and so we see. Jesus' reply, and let me mention too, later on in the passage it says this is the first sign that Jesus uh, uh, performed in public. And so those who would hold that she's expecting ordinary means would say, Mary hasn't seen Jesus perform miracles up to this point. I'm not sure that's the case. And again, from Jesus' reply, it would suggest that he understands that his mother's asking him to do something extraordinary. I'll read verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not come. Now, Jesus, this is one of those one of those cool things where you go, wait a second, I don't, I don't really understand that. What, what does this mean? Right. Jesus, Jesus's response here is a little difficult to understand at first. I, I do think we can get clarity as we look at other scriptures where this terminology is used. But it seems clear Jesus is giving his mother a gentle rebuke. And uh, let me read to you uh, some more literal translations of Jesus' response here. The most literal would be this. Jesus said to her, what is that to me and to you, woman? What is that to me and to you, woman? Or as the King James says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, you know, this is, I mean, uh, we know Jesus never sinned. We know he's not being discourteous to his mother. We know that he perfectly obeyed the commandment to honor his parents. But in using the term woman, he's using a term that's not normally used by a son addressing his mother. You know, uh, maybe uh, sort of a similar term in English might be like like lady or ma'am. But it's still an unusual word that he's using, woman, to speak to his mother. But he is saying literally, what to me and to you, woman? Now, it was a common expression. And so fortunately, we have other instances in the Bible where this expression is used and the light bulb goes off and go, aha, I have a sense 
of what he was saying there. Let me give you uh, an example from the Old Testament. I really like this this Old Testament example. It's from 2 Samuel 16, uh, verses 5 and following. When King David came to... Oh, this, by the way, this is when King David's son, Absalom, is usurping power and King David's having to flee from Jerusalem for his life and he's fleeing with his 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 men with his people who are still with him. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men which were at his right hand and at his left. Then Shimei said when he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow! The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, who is one of David's right-hand warriors, then Abishai, the son of Zerari, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. (laughs) That's the way to deal with an enemy, right? Listen to David's response. He's speaking to Abishai, his right-hand man. What have I to do with you? What have I to do with you? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall save? Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. And so so, uh, King David is saying, To Abishai, who is uh, asking King David's permission to cut off the head of this man, he is saying, what do you and I have in common? We are on two different pages on the response to this event. And there's a distancing saying, you and I do not see this the same way. Five times in The Gospels, this expression, what to me and to you is said. And what's interesting, all five times, it's spoken by demons to Jesus. Let me give you one example. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 and following. And they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles were broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? 
I implore you by God, do not torment me. And so that demon is saying, there is a a separation from us. And Jesus says to his mother, what to me and to you, woman, on her request that Jesus do something about the wine being all used up and there being no more. We can't avoid the conclusion that Jesus is courteously rebuking his mother. He is saying, your thinking is not my thinking on this. We are not in agreement on this issue. Even Jesus with his own mother. And with his own mother, we see the truth of the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You know, it's interesting. Think about this. Mary had borne him. Mary had nursed him. Mary had helped train his fingers to do simple things. Mary had caught him when he was learning how to walk. But even Mary is now going to have to approach Christ in the same way that any other person will approach Christ. And that is to recognize that his orders come from his father, that he has come to do the father's will. And even his own mother does not have an inside track. She does not direct him what to do. He is obedient to his father. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was young, remember he, he stayed behind when the families were returning from Jerusalem. And, and the family realizes three days later that he's not with the whole traveling family. And so they go back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple. All who were hearing Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why, why have you treated it this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? You know, at the end of the book of John, he says, If everything was written down that Jesus said and did, perhaps the whole world would not be able to contain it. How many times did Mary have head scratchers? When, when she would say something to Jesus and he would give a reply and, and, uh, and he was giving an answer that, would, that was an answer given from heaven, from his relationship with his heavenly father. Think about it in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 following. His mother and his brothers arrived standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering, he said to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
In John chapter 8, 28 and following, he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And so Jesus seems to be saying to Mary that it is not her place to be calling out His power. And that Jesus' mother or his relatives or his friends, his physical family, would not be the ones to direct him during his ministry. It would be his heavenly father and he would do his will. Okay. Now... Jesus says this, you know, what what to you and to me, woman, distancing himself, saying it differently. And and then he getting sort of to the second enigmatic thing in a way. But again, I believe the scripture is illuminous, but you have to study it. He gives a reason for his response to his mother. He says, my hour has not yet come. The reason, the objection which Jesus gives for the distance he maintains between himself and his mother on this issue are in his words, my hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, fortunately, we have other passages in the Bible where this terminology is used, my hour, my hour, my hour, or the hour. And so when we study that, we can start to put the pieces together. Let me read a few of those. In John chapter 7, verse 30, we read this. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 12, as Jesus is getting close to his death and resurrection, He says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. So Jesus is saying, what is his hour referred to? It is the hour in which the Son of Man is glorified. And it's going to be the hour in which he is put to death, in which he is raised again. Indeed, Jesus prays in John chapter 12. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John chapter 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So what is Jesus's hour? It is his death on the cross and the eventual exaltation bound up with it. And so Jesus is saying to Mary, when she wants him to do some extraordinary produce wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, you know, I, I used to kind of think, okay, maybe what he's saying is, when I perform miracles, or when, when, when I begin performing miracles, and my glory is displayed, it's going to bring on opposition and, uh, and my hours not come for that kind of opposition. I don't, I don't think that follows because when Jesus was enduring terrible opposition, 
They tried to seize him. This is within him because his hour had not yet come. So I don't think that makes sense. The best I can make of it, and this, not that I've thought of this, but in reading others, it's this. I want to read to you a couple of passages. One is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, and the other is from Amos 9. And it talks about the wine that the Lord is going to provide. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 9, we read this. Oops, let me just look it up very quickly. I don't have it here. Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. I'll stop with there with that on Isaiah. And let me read to you from Amos chapter nine. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I'll bring back my exiled people and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and they will make their gardens and eat fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord, your God. So, dear friends, the best I can understand that Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come for me to be glorified. Scripture is clear that the hour of Jesus to be glorified is his death and his resurrection. And again, as best I can understand it, Jesus is saying, there's going to be a time when I provide a banquet wine. But it's not yet. It's not yet. Now, how do we understand what happens? Do our best. You know, again, I can imagine there were multiple times when Jesus said something to Mary growing up and she scratched her head. You know, what, what do I make of that? Jesus says this to Mary, woman, what to you and to me? And it doesn't crush her. She doesn't go off in a corner and call it quits. Verse five. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. <laughs> That's a great way to handle it. Whatever he says to you, do it. She's content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. I think this is a great example for us, right? There are times when we come petitioning the Lord to do something. And we don't really know his mind uh, sometimes. Of course, we know his mind when, when we're praying for things that he's clearly communicated or according to his will, then when we pray for those things, we know we're totally in accord with him, right? But we may be petitioning things, and we're not exactly sure in his mind. He may be thinking, what to you and to me, right? But, but we petition him, and, and we leave it in his hands. We don't know exactly what he's going to do, but we leave it in his hands, trusting that he's going to do the right thing. And that's what Mary does here. She says to service, whatever he tells you to do, do. Read on. Now there were, verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, uh, we have some engineers in this church, right? The average of between, the medium between 20 and 30 is what? 25. 25 times 6, 150. We're talking about 150 gallons of liquid right here, okay? 
Verse 7 and following, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. You know, Satan wants to entice us to imitations, to things that are contrived, things that are hurtful, things that are cheap. But God does all things well. And, and I think it's something when Jesus changed. And, and there's no indication that the groom didn't choose or have a good wine to begin with. The point was that even as he began with, you know, a respectable wine for this occasion, what Jesus did was superior. And we see the excellence of the Lord, that he is the creator. But also, too, I, I think we see the abundance with which the Lord blesses. I mean, I said to Sydney this morning, and we live in an apartment right now. If somebody walked in our apartment and found 150 gallons of wine in our apartment, y'all are doing something illegal. This is just such a large amount. But Jesus, Jesus did that. And he did it well. And I think that quantity reflects the lavish provision that we live in this, this, this Christian age. The Lord is not stingy. He's never been stingy with His children. He is not a Scrooge. He provides to overflowing. Christ will never come up short. He will never fail. Verse 11. This is the beginning of His signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Uh, my, my wife and I have laughed about a sign that we've seen frequently through West Georgia. And, and you may think, well, Bill, I just don't get it. Because if you grew up around here, maybe you don't get it. But we frequently see the sign that says, Hill Blocks View. <laughs> yeah? I don't know why I need a sign to tell me that a hill blocks a view. <laughs> I just find that we have found that very funny. But anyway, apart from that sign, which to me uh, just doesn't quite make sense, is usually signs are giving a direction. They point you towards something, right? A billboard, an advertisement, a sign is pointing you towards we want you to buy this. This is why you should purchase this. Or a sign on the interstate is saying, you know, exit here for I-65 North, right? North, yeah, 65 North. Okay. When, we use, when, when we're speaking of the Lord suspending natural law and doing something that is outside of what commonly happens in nature, we typically call it what? what a what? A miracle. And that's a great term, right? But I particularly like the word sign. 
Because Jesus here has no interest in performing neat tricks to impress the masses. When he does these things, it is pointing one towards something. And it's pointing one towards, towards the very person who's performing this sign. And it is also communicating that if he is capable of doing these signs, when he speaks up, he is to be listened to and obeyed because no one can do that unless he is sent from God. These are displays of power for a purpose. They point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can be seen by eyes of faith. And notice here that said it was the beginning of his signs. They manifested his glory. And what was the result? His disciples believed in him. Well, you know, the, sort of the cynic may say, well, that's. That's well and fine, but hey, that was 2,000 years ago. I don't get to see any signs. Ain't no signs coming my way. What am I supposed to do with it? John writes towards the end of the book in John chapter 20. Um, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, yeah, generations are passing away during John's time that did not have and will not have the opportunity to see these signs occur. But these things have been written down so that succeeding generations can read them and believe that they can point a person towards Christ. And in fact, in that passage, Jesus says to them in John chapter 20, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Now, it must have been a huge blessing to be able to see Jesus perform these signs, right? I mean, I'd love to have a time machine, right? But how sweet of Jesus to say and for God to make sure it's recorded that, dear friends, you and I who don't get to see these things and yet we read them, As we believe and as these signs point us to Jesus and we put our faith in him, that we are blessed. We are blessed. So in closing, let me say this. Dear friend, you must come to Jesus on on his terms. Mary had to come to Jesus on his terms. Now, again, when Jesus was dying on the cross, one of the last things he did was provide for his mother. He said to John, behold your mother, to his mother, behold your son. He loved his mother. He honored his mother. But she had to approach him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your father may have been a pastor. That's well and good. You may be an elder or deacon. That's well and good. But you have to... Read what the scriptures say about Jesus and those signs point you towards him and you must believe and you come to him on his terms. There's no inside track. Now, there are blessings for being in a Christian family, right? Think about Paul saying, you know, what privilege do the Jews have? Much in every way they have the oracles of God. There's a great blessing from coming 
from a, a, a holy line. But at the end of the day, you've got to approach Jesus on his terms. And thanks be to God, he says, whoever comes to me, by no means will I turn away. But also think about this. For those of you who did not grow up in a Christian family. For those of you who didn't have godly modeling. For those of you who grew up in a household where there was no knowledge of the gospel. The way is open for you too. You must approach Jesus on his own terms. But the way is there. And reading and seeing with eyes of faith and beholding and having faith of him brings about a salvation as secure as Peter's, a salvation as secure as Paul's. And finally, dear friends, we look forward to the Messianic banquet. Jesus' hour has come. He's glorified. And He it's coming again. He's going to raise up his people and we are going to be there. Our body, we will be there in redeemed bodies. We'll no longer be capable of sinning. Christ will be our elder brother at the table. And we'll enjoy the Messianic banquet with the finest of wines and the best of meats. And as we come to the Lord's table, we're anticipating that. Now certainly these elements look back to Jesus' death on the cross. The wine represents His blood poured out. The bread represents His body that was given for us. Very much they look back towards the cross. Jesus said, whenever we eat and drink these things, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But they also look forward. They look forward to that Messianic banquet. And so what Jesus did that, you know, again, he said that to his mother, but then he did provide the wine. I can't figure all of that out. But what he did that day, I think, is a small picture of, uh, of something that is big and beautiful in the head. So I would ask the, uh, the elders, please, to come forward who are going to help with communion and let our hearts magnify uh, the Lord, the, the Messiah.